Mike Gibson and John Eichelboom coming to you live from ESC 2017. John, congratulations, a landmark study, the Compass study. Uh, you know, as you know all too well, we had done the Atlas study, a trial of Rivaroxaban in ACS, showing that this very low dose of Rivaroxaban, only 2.5 milligrams twice a day, when added to antiplatelets, improved death of my stroke, but also mortality. Uh, in a sizable study of 15,500 patients. You've now come along and done the same thing in people with chronic CAD. Tell us a little bit more about the design of the study and uh, what you found. Yeah, as you suggested, we built on all your hard work in, in Atlas and uh, used the same doses, uh, three-arm study. Uh, one of the arms was the combination of 2.5 twice a day rivaroxaban and aspirin. The second arm was five milligrams twice a day alone, and the third arm was the control aspirin alone. The, uh, the results, uh, the winning arm, let's, uh, let's say, was the combination versus aspirin, and the, the rivaroxaban arm alone was uh, neutral, uh, but the combination compared with aspirin reduced the primary outcome, 24% CV death stroke myocardial infarction. But in similar fashion to Atlas, a mortality mm -hmm. reduction, 18%. Uh, very, very uh, reassuring to see the consistency between the two trials. Sure. Well, and also in the Pioneer study, ACS and AFib, that 2.5 milligram dose, again, had the lowest event rate of, of anything. So it's the, I call it the undefeated champion right, uh, right. in uh, CAD, ACS and chronic CAD. Why do you think very low doses, you know, low-dose aspirin and low-dose of an antithrombin, why is less more in this setting? Yes, well, that's the, the, uh, the million-dollar question. And I think of, of blood pressure lowering and, and we the use... combinations, yeah. you know, d putting different combinations together at very low doses yeah. and avoiding the toxicity yeah. seems to be more effective than driving up the dose. And uh, having the twice daily regimen over a 24-hour period, you're getting a low, stable anticoagulation uh, level on a base of low-dose aspirin. Uh, it makes a lot of sense from, uh, from a coagulation point of view. I mean, thrombosis is certainly not purely platelet-driven, not purely uh, uh, thrombin-driven, but it's always the two in concert and uh, targeting different pathways, I think, in the same way that targeting platelets through different pathways sure. um, is beneficial. So similar to our experience, we did see some reduction in MI. It was not overwhelming. And likewise, in your study, really stroke drove a lot of the endpoint. Talk to us about that. Was it, do you think it was embolic or was it, was it you know, plaque rupture? Which, which mechanism was it? Well, a fascinating uh, observation, and it caused us to go back and look across the previous trials, uh, certainly the trials versus aspirin, and, and Capri, Charisma, Pegasus, and now Compass. And in each of these trials, the stroke reduction was impressive. Now, in some, it wasn't statistically significant, but think of Charisma. There was, I think, a 20-odd percent reduction in stroke. Both the Pegasus Ticagrelor arms had a, an impressive stroke mm -hmm. effect. The mechanism, we, we think, uh, well, is there silent atrial fibrillation going on in this population? That's certainly a possibility, and some of the data at this meeting suggests that it's 
it's 20 or 30 percent of the wow. population. Uh, wow. We we looked at reported atrial fibrillation, and that's certainly the strokes in that group doesn't explain it. Uh, we did include people with with large vessel disease, uh, mm -hmm. carotid disease, about 1,500 that we know of, mm -hmm. uh, and we excluded people with known history of lacuna stroke. Mm -hmm. So it could be the large vessel effect. It could be subclinical atrial fibrillation. But to be honest, I don't really know. Yeah. And then, of course, there's ischemic stroke, but there's also ICH and hemorrhagic conversion. And it was fascinating to me that the hemorrhagics were a little lower as well. Talk to us about that. Yes, well, we, had, we certainly are concerned about the use of anticoagulants in the early phase post-stroke. Uh, I think uh, the, the, uh, the numbers of hemorrhagic transformations was about half or less in the right. combination group. So what do you think is going on there? Did you minimize the size of the ischemic stroke and lower the risk of transformation? How did that work? Well, it could well be. Uh, I think warfarin is, uh, warfarin is the drug that is associated with the highest rate of intracranial hemorrhage and mechanistically the, the NOACs might protect us because they're stoichiometrics so when there is coagulation activation we can overwhelm the effect of the anticoagulant but as you say the other possible explanation is if you have smaller strokes they're less likely to transform so that may well be an explanation as well. And you had both CAD and peripheral arterial disease patients can you talk a little bit about the benefits in those two different groups? So uh, overall, at a 24% risk reduction, interestingly, these two groups overlap. So mm -hmm. in each of the two groups, the treatment effect was somewhat larger because of this polyvascular group, right. which has the highest event rate and the biggest benefit. So in, in Biggest the, benefit on a relative risk reduction or absolute risk reduction? Well, actually, on, on, both, on both. On both. So, well... Technically, the, the difference in the relative risk reduction is, is very modest. So mm -hmm. 24 goes to 28. But a little bit bigger. A little bit bigger. Uh, the PAD group, very interesting to see that there was a reduction in acute limb events. Right. So less amputation, less acute limb ischemia. I think that's going to be a very important feature for uh, vascular patients with peripheral artery disease who their greatest fear is is my leg sure. going to be amputated? Absolutely. Any subgroups stick out as big winners or big losers? Uh, very consistent effects in subgroups. So as you can imagine, we looked at it every which way you can. Uh, we had a certain number of important pre-specified and then the, uh, a long list of others and then the rest. Sure. Um, but no, no major subgroups to be concerned about. Uh, I did want to come back to your comment about myocardial infarction mm -hmm. because we did explore that further mm -hmm. and looked at uh, the composite of myocardial infarction, uh, resuscitated cardiac arrest, mm -hmm. and sudden cardiac death. Mm -hmm. And there was an effect in that combination. Sure. So somewhat reassuring that we are reducing acute coronary events, I think. Right. Well, you know, we struggle a lot with that in ATLAS. And when you look at the autopsy data, you know, there's generally two big ways you die. One is a fatal MI that didn't make it to the hospital or a pulmonary embolism that didn't make it to the hospital. So one of my other theories is that we're also exerting effect on the venous system. And a lot of these sudden deaths are found, you know, dead with the remote in your hand, as we so often see. 
It may not have been MI, it may have been a PE, and we may be reducing a lot of PEs with this low dose of uh, Riva as well. Well, it's interesting you should mention that because there was almost a 50% reduction in venous thromboembolism. Right. Marginally significant, low numbers, but intriguing, and it fits with your right. So these thinking. are survived events, survived MI, survived PEs we're talking about, but the non-survived ones may be, you know, Indeed. adding a lot of statistical significance. Indeed. So what about bleeding? You know, I put a poll on Twitter and I said, which is more important, reducing mortality or, you know, or an increase in bleeding? 85% of people said reducing mortality, but there's still 15% of the voters out there who think bleeding is more important they would rather die than bleed, and I don't yes. understand it. Yes. So uh, tell us a little bit about the bleeding signal. Well, a great poll. I've been watching yeah. you on Twitter, and yeah. uh, I saw the, the posting. But yes, there is a price to pay. There's no ways around that. We right. have to pay a price. Um, we looked very carefully at the bleeding, uh, a 70% increase. I think important to know that we did have a modified bleeding definition as uh, suggested by the regulators and we did include probably a third of our bleeds were not as important as the standard definitions sure. would include um, and no significant increase in intracranial bleeding although if we had it's massive really numbers we might find something but or fatal bleeding or, or fatal bleeding I mean at the end of the day those are the two things that I think clinicians care most about did you have a fatal bleed or die from a bleed, and that's very reassuring. So uh, how do you think this changes practice? I know my mentor, Dr. Bronwald, said this is uh, going to change practice in CAD. What's been the re reception to this study? Well, I think, and, and as we commented earlier on, I think the consistency with, with the work in ATLAS gives great confidence. This is real. There's no doubt about it. This lower dose, this vascular protective dose of rivaroxaban works. It's effective, it reduces mortality, and I think it should change practice. Uh, there are going to be a large number of people worldwide with chronic, stable vascular disease who would benefit from the regimen. We have the regulators, we have the scientific community, we have the payers uh, to, sure. to negotiate, and that's all going to take its due course. And, sure. But I think it will have a substantial impact in, on practice in the fullness of time. Right. Well, I look forward to working with you and combining our data from Atlas with your data to see what we can learn about the acute phase and the chronic phase and how we bridge those people. Uh, but congratulations and uh, great job. Well, thank you. Thanks, and thanks to all of you for joining us here live from ESC 2017.